and it's entitled Jesus Teaches Nicodemus. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That is, everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for the fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that they may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now John was also baptising at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water 
and the people were coming and being baptised. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptising and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given to them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Thanks be to God for this reading. We come to our second reading from uh, the Gospel of John and uh, our series, I Am, uh, as I said earlier, pretty much comes from the Gospel of John and we will be aiming to read as much of John up towards Easter as we can. Okay, so today's, or the second reading, comes from John chapter 4 and then uh, Nick will continue on and bring the message to us. Okay. Okay, so let's read from the Lord's Word, and it's entitled, Jesus Talks with a Samaritan Woman, and it says this. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptising more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptised, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, 
and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but everyone who drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I the one speaking to you, I am he. <clears throat> Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? And then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. <clears throat> then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's, it's still four months until the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I have sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labour. Many of the Samaritans of that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. After two days, he left for Galilee. 
Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he'd done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he'd turned the water into wine. <coughs> Excuse me. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay ill at Capernaum. And when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. And the royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go. Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed and this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judah to Galilee. I invite you to have one of these ready. <clears throat> because you haven't got a word search, you've got something all oh, much more exciting. Um, but I'm going to pray... Father God, we pray to you today that you would work amongst us by your Holy Spirit. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would blow powerfully, as it were, amongst us and testify to our hearts about our sinfulness, but about the rescue and solution to that sinfulness that is present and held out to us even at this moment in time. Uh, through the work of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Please come amongst us. By his spirit we pray, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. How many people in church are really believers? How many are really saved? How many people are, are really, how many of you this morning are really in a living relationship with God? And I'm not thinking about those who are new, you've only been here a few weeks, or you're inquiring into the Christian faith. I'm thinking really about those of you who've been here for years. If I could wave a spiritual anemometer, that little yellow thing which didn't work, um, over your head, how, par how powerfully is the Holy Spirit moving in your life? Measured by... We don't need the spiritual anemometer because we can measure it by your response to the scriptures. To love Christ is to love his word. To love Christ is to love his people and to serve them. To love Christ is to love prayer. To love Christ and to have the Holy Spirit in, within you is to, is to see personal transformation ongoing throughout your life. To love Christ is to be excited about him. Seventy percent, sixty percent, fifty percent. And a second related question. This came up. It came up in conversation with somebody we were having this week. <coughs> but how many also 
have got entirely the wrong end of the stick. So an interesting a 2005 survey amongst American teenagers summed up their, um, their beliefs as therapeutic moral deism. Uh, I'm grateful to Rob for this. Um, <clears throat> came up in a book he lent. And maybe the people for whom the wind is not blowing are the same people who've got the wrong end of the stick. And therapeutic moral deism, this was, uh, it was a survey done amongst American teenagers, as I say, and the, the guy gathered together what essentially they believed. Um, but I think it's useful because it, it, it's what a lot of people believe. It's what a lot of people in churches believe, unfortunately, and it's what a lot of people in our community believe. And they believe this, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And good people go to heaven when they die. It's not entirely false, but it's not Christianity. Can you tell where it breaks down and where it stands up? That's what you believe this morning. It's not Christian. So, thankfully, we have John. And John is going to put us right. John is one of the 12 apostles um, that Jesus chose, the next slide, to witness to his ministry. So he's one of the 12 um, that he chose. He's one of the inner three. So James and John and Peter, they get to see the transfiguration. And there are times when Jesus takes them aside. So he's one of Jesus' um, closest followers. And John writes later than the other gospel writers, maybe, maybe 80 AD, maybe even later. Um, the other Gospels uh, around 60 AD, 60, 65. So there's evidence in here, uh, so the scholars tell us that, that John has read Mark and, and he's read Luke, uh, and maybe he's read Matthew as well. And Matthew and Mark and Luke, and they go together, and we call them the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic means that they have this, means same view. They have a very similar view. They, they correspond with each other. And that's because Mark wrote it first and Matthew's taken um, part of Mark and, and Matthew and Luke have obviously found some other source as well. Means kind of sin, synoptic means seen together. But if you read, God's, uh, read John's gospel, you'll find that it's different. I think that's your, your first conclusion. And I would encourage you to read John between now and Easter. And we're going to read it. We're going to read it in church. So I'm going to make no apology. Um, Paul says to Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Um, very few churches do that. So we're going to try and read as much of John between, in the services between, between now and Easter as we can. And we'll get, we'll get through most of it. We've had to kind of cut a little bit out already. Um, we've skipped over from the middle of chapter 1 to chapter 3. So I've missed the wedding in Cana and one or two other things. And occasionally we'll miss other chunks. We'll get through most of John, including at the um, Good Friday service. We'll get through John. But if you read it, you'll find that it's different. And if you are kind of, even though it's read to you today, you'll find it's different. You're going to have to work a bit harder. And can I encourage you when the reading comes up, not to switch off, but to try and switch on. Um, and to, to dig into it, even as it goes along. Try to really concentrate on the words. So he writes independently. 
John has his own sources, and obviously John was an eyewitness himself. So in John, there are, for instance, there's no parables. John doesn't record any parables. He, he records um, these blocks of uh, chunks of teaching from Jesus. And so he, we find that he fills in some gaps. This is one of the interesting things, is that he kind of interlocks with the, with the synoptics. And I don't think he's deliberately gap-filling, but, but because he's writing his own independent story, he, I think, inadvertently fills in some things, maybe. So do you remember at the trial of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, he's accused, the, these guys stand up and accuse Jesus of saying that he was going to tear the temple down and rebuild it, and they couldn't get their story straight. Well, the time when Jesus did actually say that is recorded in John, but not in the other three Gospels. You see what I mean? So there are times when John fills, fills in. I don't think he's deliberately trying to gap fill, but there are times when John explains what's happening in the other Gospels and vice versa. Sometimes what's in the other Gospels um, fills in what's happening in John. Um, John, I think, probably presupposes the birth stories about Jesus from, from Matthew um, and from Luke. He doesn't bother going back to those because John, as we found out over Christmas, he wants to go way back beyond that and he wants to take... Um, the life of Jesus, or at least the life, the life of the Word, who became flesh in Jesus, right back to um, before creation. So he writes independently, which is interesting. He writes theologically, I would say. So it's also noted there are no exorcisms in John. doesn't record Jesus casting out demons anywhere. But John teaches, we get more of Jesus teaching about the devil in John. So his interests are slightly different. Doesn't record the casting out of demons, but he, he, we hear Jesus teaching about Satan. So the Synoptic Gospels, they, they teach us something about prayer, but it's John who teaches us that prayer is in Jesus' name to the Father. Prayer is in the Spirit, in Jesus' name, pray to the Father. Or put it the other way around, prayer is to the Father in the name of the Son through the Spirit. So John is constantly going behind the scenes, I would suggest, and teaching on the Trinity. So you have to watch out for the Trinity in John. So John writes independently, so I think it's worth flipping back and forth on occasion and reading the other Gospels. John writes theologically, so I would suggest don't skip over the, the waffly bit, if I dare call them that, if I dare call any bit of scripture the waffly bit. Um, so I think we tended to think of John as being like the other Gospels, and we want to read the action. Um, we want to read the fun stuff that's in the parables. Um, but Jesus in John is talking about his relationship with the Father and his relationship with the Spirit, and we start to scratch our head and think, oh, well, this is a bit deep. Um, can I encourage you to, at that point, um, home group leaders or worship team leaders, we were talking about the Trinity, put your Trinity head on. Um, and see what John is saying about the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And John writes for his own purposes, and his purpose is this, and you don't find it out until the end of the book. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. John says, I'm giving you signs so that you can believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And by believing, you might have life in his name. 
So look for Old Testament references and allusions. I think John's writing primarily to, to it's like a Jewish gospel to persuade um, Jews. And ask the question along the way, has John made his point? Has he persuaded us that Jesus is the Messiah? And there's some other themes in John, but if I tell you all about them, we'll be, be here forever. But they're here on, on the sheet. Um, Jesus' messianic identity, salvation, the hour. Jesus says the time is coming. If you read other translations, the hour is coming and is now here. Here, he talks about Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He talks about Old Testament allusions. There are lots of misunderstandings in John. John talks about things that people didn't understand then and they understand now. He talks about the people of God, talks about the sacraments, talks about election, faith, and salvation. And what I want you to do is to, you could bring that next week. I don't know, I might have to print it on the back next week. Um, so that you can just tick when you find those in the reading or the sermon. So that's your job for today, is just to kind of spot these um, uh, when they come up uh, in the reading or, or in the sermon. You'd be surprised how many of those come out even today. So what we're going to do is we're going to concentrate on the seven I am statements. Though the writer of the Bible studies that we're using, he's found an eighth I am statement, which is the one today where Jesus says, I am he. Seven signs are up there. I'm going to just blitz on past. Um, but the way, these, the way these I am statements, which are there on, on the screen, the way they're spread out, it means that we can, we can take the opportunity to read most of the gospel as we go along. If you want to join us for Uncover John, obviously home groups are doing John, Uncover John. We're doing that in a slightly different way. If you want to join that, come and see me today. After today, it's too late. So for today, two stories. We have two contrasting stories. We have a well-to-do, respected, powerful city man who makes a deliberate meeting with Jesus where he, Nicodemus, <clears throat> takes the initiative. And then in John 4, we have a rural outcast, maybe despised woman, who has an apparent chance encounter with Jesus, where Jesus takes the initiative and the woman remains unnamed. And isn't it interesting that the man who comes in the dark needs light and the woman who comes along to the well needs water. But I think that's the genius of Jesus' communication. He takes what's there and uses it to make a point. But what they both need is the Spirit of God. What they both need, what you need, is the Spirit of God at work in your life. And we're going to take a look at the woman at the well. It's not long since we last looked at this. Um, so I'm going to kind of move quickly through the story and try and just pick, pick a little bit underneath the surface and look at the, uh, at the theological stuff. So this is one of those sermons where it went through a complete rewrite overnight, and I'm still not sure I've got to the point that I kind of really felt I ought to be getting at. But hey, here we go, and we'll see where we get to. So water. We're going to look at water, weddings, worship, and witness. Okay, um, briefly, I assure you. 
The whole encounter kicks off because Jesus is traveling. And he's traveling because there's trouble brewing. And the Pharisees, who are like a, a, a religious stroke political party, they've noticed that Jesus' popularity is growing. There, there's John, um, John the, the Baptist, saying that he must become less. It's time for Jesus to become more. Jesus has been noticed. Jesus is, Jesus is not afraid of trouble. And in time, he will walk straight into it, but now is not the time. So he heads north away from Jerusalem, where the Pharisees are, towards Galilee. And the quickest route is to go through Samaria. So Samaria is kind of like the other half of the province. You've got Judea at the bottom. You, you've got Samaria in the north. They were governed by the same Roman governor. But the Jews and the Samaritans, they, they hated each other. There were historical reasons for that, which we won't go into. But they considered that the Samaritans were racially impure and that they were religiously heretic. So when it says the Jews do not associate with Samaritans, it could be translated, um, Jews do not use dishes that Samaritans have used. So that, that gives you an idea doesn't it, of how they felt about them. Jews do not use dishes that Samaritans have used. I wonder what the equivalent group would be for us. It's the kind of group of people. You say, oh, wow. Won't even use the dishes that they've used. It's pretty extreme, isn't it? They don't eat meat or greet. So Jesus heading this way, it's a recipe for tension. It's not necessarily a recipe for trouble. He's just passing through. It's the middle of the day. It's noon. Jesus sits down by a well, he's tired. Note the reality of Jesus' human experience. And a woman comes to draw water. And he starts a conversation. He asks her for a drink. And she's surprised. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? The rabbi said one should not talk to a woman on the street. Not even his own wife. And certainly not with somebody else's wife, because of the gossip of men. So said the, uh, the Jewish authorities. And Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. It's a bit of a teaser, isn't it? And she's respectful, but doubtful. You haven't even got a bucket, mate. And it's a deep well. And Jesus persists. Everyone who drinks of this water again will be thirsty. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Wow, what is Jesus offering? Well, in his own words, he's offering a permanent solution to your spiritual thirst. A permanent solution to your spiritual thirst. A permanent solution to Christianity as dry and dust, dry as dust rule keeping. He's promising her something that will flow, flow out of her. Um, like, a, like a spring. He's promising that he will give her a new kind of life, a new experience of life, fit for living with God in eternity. 
Let's think theologically. Let's take up God's challenge to think. Think always, I think, in John's Gospel, Father, Son, Spirit. What is going on? Our God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons but one God. They can never be separated. Where one is present, the other three are always present. So let's think theologically. God the Son, and the person of Jesus, has come close he's to, to humanity. That's an understatement. He, he's become human, and he comes with an offer to this lady that God the Holy Spirit will live within her. It should, you know, there should be a little bit of, not compute. He has offered that the very person and presence of God will come and live within her. Personally and persistently. I think we need to go back to Ezekiel 36 and, and the promise that, that, that God makes to the, to the Jewish people. He says, when, in, in my new covenant, the new covenant I'll make with you, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So he's offering her, as he offers you, the, the life living, life-giving presence of the Holy God in her, in her life. So if we take Ezekiel 36, he is offering, offering her cleansing. We'll come back to that in a minute. He's offering for her to be forgiven, washed clean. He's offering her a kind of one-off change, a heart change. He says, I will change you, your heart. I will change the very inner you. It will be a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. In other words, it will be a heart that bends and responds um, to the Lord. And beyond that, he says, oh, I will put my spirit in you <coughs> and move you to follow my decrees. I will put my Holy Spirit in you and move you. It is just one of the most astonishing statements of Scripture. It is one of the most astonishing statements of Scripture that God says, I will come and be present within you, and I will work by my own power to make you want to do what I want you to do. And that is the key difference between Old Testament and New Testament religion. Old Testament is rules applied from the outside. New Testament is... Oomph, it is... Uh, the pneumatic power of the Holy Spirit applied from the inside. In other words, he's offering to baptise her in the Holy Spirit. Which is uh, what happens at conversion, what should happen. 
when you become a Christian? For her, it was a chance encounter. And sometimes, you, you know, you might find you've had a chance encounter with, with Christ or something that just seemed like it in the last couple of weeks. Oh, I wonder when you just have to bear in mind that Jesus might be making you an offer, like this lady. An offer to put, here is God the Son offering that God the Holy Spirit, where actually which all the persons of the God hell will be there, but it will be the Holy Spirit who is in the foreground, to live within you and to change you as a one-off, make a one-off change of your heart and to make an ongoing change in you every day. That is something you don't need an anemometer to read. When that happens, change is, is obvious, is it not? On the outside. Okay, water. Um, that's the longest one. Um, weddings. Jesus says, go call your husband. She tells a partial truth. I haven't got a husband. Jesus says, you're right when you say that. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you've got now is not your husband. Having five husbands was not necessarily a problem, but the rabbis said that three was a kind of sensible maximum. Divorce was in the husband's power. So she has either been bereaved or sent away by five men. May not be her fault. It's possible, isn't it, she, that she might, uh, she might not be able to have children or something along those lines. But the implication is that she's hard to live with, at the very least. Or worse, that she has a, a commitment problem. And the fact that she comes to draw water at noon is a sign that she sees herself as an outcast and she doesn't want to go there um, when the other women come out in the cool of the day, either in the morning or the evening. She's been through five weddings and she's now given up on the whole concept of marriage as a good thing. And Jesus, God the Son, come humanly, knows all about her and has stepped up and initiated a, a conversation with her. And morally, we we're all in the same boat. Morally, we're all in the same boat. doesn't matter whether you've had one wedding or five or none. Paul says in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all in the same boat with her. Whatever your background, your history, your failures or your success, the amazing thing is that Jesus knows. Jesus knows all about it. All the stuff that you keep secret from church members, all the stuff you keep secret from your husband, your wife maybe. Jesus knows about it. And he still makes you the same offer. I will put my spirit in you. I will change your heart and I will move you um, to keep my decrees. The solution is the same. As Paul would put it, we're justified by freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. He's offering her this spirit. But actually that spirit is on the basis of a payment paid for her sin 
which he will pay himself as he goes to the cross. And her being right before God, which again he will give her. Worship. So water, weddings, worship. She says, so they've had this discussion about Husbands, and she says, I can see your prophet. Our, ma- our ancestors worship on this mountain, but you claim the place where we must worship is in, in Jerusalem. Shike says, okay, when and how? So this may be a distraction topic um, to get her off the subject, to get Jesus off the subject of husbands. Or it may be a genuine question that she says, uh, she sees Jesus maybe has an answer to her hard questions. Where should I worship? You say in Jerusalem, the Samaritans, obviously they couldn't get to Jerusalem. They'd set up their own place on Mount Gerizim. And Jesus says to her that the time is coming and has now come. Oh, tick it off quick on your, on your sheet. Um, it's, if you read like ESV or another translation, it's, it's much clearer because it says the hour has come. Um, when the place will no longer matter. The hour has come because Jesus has come in person. It's coming in the sense that it, uh, it won't be completely there until he's died and risen again and ascended and sent the Holy Spirit. The time has, has coming and has now come where you worship neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. He says, God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and truth. God is spirit. You know, that's dead obvious, isn't it? He's not material. That does not make him any less real or any less substantial. God is spirit. He is not matter. He cannot be seen. Jesus says the place of worship no longer matters. What matters is that worship is in spirit and in truth. And one of the things the Holy Spirit does when the Holy Spirit is in your life is, in a, in a real sense, he connects you to God. When you when you not don't have the Holy Spirit in your life, you, it, it's like you know having your telephone line cut. There's no point picking up the phone, um, or it's like picking up your phone when there's no phone signal. There's there's just no point. You can try and have a conversation, but it's, you, you <laughs> but it's not going anywhere. It's going into the ether. But when you're born again of the Spirit of God, then you are, in a very real sense, connected to God. Not just connected. The relationship has started on the basis of what Christ has done, but you are, in a very real sense, connected. Um, worship has to be in spirit and in truth. And Jesus is the truth. He says that. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So when we worship, it has to be true to Jesus. It has to be true to the scriptures. It has to be true to the Bible. But notice, this is Trinitarian. Ooh, tick it off. Okay. Must worship the Father in spirit and truth. We worship the Father because we're in Christ, trusting what Jesus has done. And that in Christness is brought to us and applied to us by 
the Holy Spirit of God. That's what it means to worship in, in spirit and, and truth. So some churches would say, I'm, oh, well, we're a spirit and word church. We're a spirit and truth church, which means we have charismatic style worship and, and then we have the Bible. Well, this is, nothing, this is absolutely nothing to do with that. To worship God, you have to be in Christ because the Holy Spirit of Christ is dwelling within you. And then your worship is anywhere and everywhere. Your worship has very little to do with singing, Sunday singing. Your worship is, is your life anywhere and everywhere. Because, I mean, that's part of what Jesus is saying, isn't it? Your worship is released and, and, and sent out from church and place. So your worship is everything you do in spirit and truth. And so the... the <clears throat> The NRV translation, this one anyway, in the spirit and in truth is not really helpful because it sounds like it's in one thing and in another thing. And actually John says it's in spirit and, in spirit and truth. The, the extra the isn't there. It's in spirit and truth. It must always be in those things. It can't be in one of those things one moment, one of those things another moment. And finally, so water, weddings, worship, witness. The woman runs back um, to the town. Um, where does it go? Anyway, she runs back, telling. Listen to this guy who'd come and see the man. There it is, who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? Okay. She left her water jar. Never noticed that before. I don't know why she leaves the water jar. Um, maybe she's got something better than water. Um, and she, she runs back to, to the town. And this woman who's been trying to hide um, is now running around going, come and see this man who told me everything I ever did. And later on we discovered they, they come out and they ask Jesus to come and stay. This, this gospel, this promise of, of living water, it, it is such a good thing that you can't help sharing it. The gospel we have in Christ is, is really good news. If you've got good news, you automatically share it. Can we flip that over and say, if you're not in some level sharing something with other people about Christ, then you don't really believe it's good news. You just have to be honest about that. So if I went down to Lidl and said they had a lathe for 20 quid, and I came back and I said, I bought this 20 quid lathe from Lidl. Isn't this wonderful? I would tell you all about it. Okay, I would bore you silly. Okay, in fact, the lathe was 80 quid. I didn't think that was a bargain, so I didn't buy it. Um, but if, if it had been 20 quid, I would have bought it for Leslie, um, who loves this kind of stuff. Um, and I would have told you all about it. Because it was good news and it was cheap. And here you have some good news and it's free. 
And if you're not talking about it, then you don't really believe it's good news. Don't need an anemometer. Just need to look and see whether you believe you've got a good thing. Believe that you're forgiven. Believe that Jesus has come. Let's go to the last slide of Canyon. Flip over that one. Let's get theological really quickly before we finish. Um, Father sends the Son to be his ultimate revelation of truth. The Father sends the Son to die in your place. The Son sends the Spirit to live with you and be in you, to give you life, spiritual life, eternal life, to bring you cleansing, that's washing, to bring you a one-off change um, in the moral status of your heart, um, to bring you day-by-day change and to bring you access to worship. Is the Spirit blowing through your life. It looks a bit flat calm, can I say? Should look a bit choppy. Is the water, is the washing, is the worship, is the witness? What's going on? Let's pray. Father God, we we um, Lord, sometimes we feel like we're on the drip feed. Sometimes, sometimes the waters look a bit flat, flat, calm. Um, where's the Holy Spirit gone? Have we grieved you? Yes, I guess we have. Have we opposed you? Yes, I guess we have. Have we not relied on you? Yes. I guess we have. We, we confess it. But we want this to be a, a time of change. We want this to be a church that doubles in size. We want the people of Staines to know about the gospel. Please bring new life by your spirit. Water us, we pray. Because Jesus is the Messiah. He is God the Son. Come to bring the gift of the Spirit to us. And oh Lord, we've ignored it. Please help us. Pour out your Spirit on us again, we pray today. In Jesus' name, amen.